May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So last Sunday I talked about the story, or we looked at the story of the wedding at Cana. And I suggested that it was John's first example of what he had said in the prologue. That the word of God became, that the word became flesh and from his fullness... We have received grace upon grace. And so the story of the wedding at Cana is a story about what grace upon grace looks like. What it looks like, what it feels like, what it smells like, what it sounds like, and what it tastes like. And the suggestion is that we should use that phrase... That the word became flesh and from his fullness we have received grace upon grace as the lens by which we then read the rest of John's Gospel. That the rest of John's Gospel is a fleshing out of what grace upon grace looks like, tastes like, feels like, sounds like. This morning's morning's reading from Luke is to be, some would suggest, read in exactly the same way. So first of all, a bit of context. This is right at the beginning. It's Luke 4, but it's right at the beginning of the story of Jesus in Luke's Gospel. So far, Jesus has been baptised by John, and then the Holy Spirit leads uh, Jesus. Actually, there isn't a that. We put a that in there. It's just a Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days, at the end of which he is famished, that's what Luke says, and the devil does his tempting thing, and there are no angels in Luke, he doesn't get fed at the end of that, he then goes, well, then we're right at the beginning of this week's reading, so he goes to Galilee, and he does his teaching thing in the synagogues, and we have when he goes home. So this is right at the beginning. And Jesus goes home to Nazareth where he had grown up and as he had done for every Shabbat while he had been growing up, he went to the synagogue. And as someone who can read, which should make us pause really, how come Jesus can read? If he is the son of a poor carpenter, how does he get to read? Like, how does he, where's he learn to read? It's a really interesting question. But anyway, he is someone who can read, and so he is invited to stand up and to read the scroll, and he is given the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. So he is given that scroll, but he chooses where he reads. And, well, then it gets a little bit tricky at this point, because as Luke quotes it, this passage doesn't exist in the prophet Isaiah. It's mostly Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, with about half of Isaiah 58 verse 6 wedged into the middle of it. And you can bank on the fact that Jesus didn't suddenly scroll back up to Isaiah 58. So like this thing where I can just kind of go up and down scrolling. He actually had a physical scroll which he would have had to roll. So either, well... Luke probably didn't have access to the scroll 
of Isaiah as he was writing this, because at this point things were getting a bit tricky for followers of Christ. And, well, scrolls are pretty expensive things. Just talk to uh, any Jew today and they'll tell you how expensive a scroll is to buy. And that's what they still read from in the synagogues, the scrolls. None of these dinky little books. And, uh, but also, I think Luke was trying to make a point. He's working off his memory of what the passage is. But this is, this is the passage as it has been handed down within his community. This is the passage that Jesus read. This is Jesus' mission statement, we might say. So he just quotes it. Has his community remembers it. And then when he has read the passage that he chose for himself, he sits down. Now we often read that as he sat down back in his place and people were looking to see what he said. But actually, teachers sat. I remember when Bishop David... The last time he came here and he preached here, he went and got his seat and he brought it and sat it down in the middle of the right here and he sat down and he taught. He did a sermon from his seat. So that was the traditional place in the Orthodox Church today. That is still how preachers preach. Sit it, seated up the front. So Jesus sat in the teacher's seat and people were looking at him wondering what he was going to say. Well, what he said, so far, not so bad. Pretty pithy, really. One line. Some of you might be wishing some of my sermons were one line long. (laughs) However, as we will find out next week, he goes on and causes, well, that causes a little bit of a stir. But that's next week. So some points to note. The first is that Jesus chooses this passage. So like me, who's given a bunch of readings by some nameless people people somewhere far away in a book called The Lectionary, Jesus has given the scroll, but he knows where he's going in that scroll. He knows that scroll well enough that he can go to his place, Isaiah 61. That's his go-to place. So what he says is not an accident. He deliberately seeks it out. And he takes these ancient promises, promises that were given to the people after they had returned from the exile, after they had returned and life just wasn't as they had hoped it would be. Our passage from Nehemiah is from that time. They came back from the exile, they had wonderful visions of what life would be like when they returned to Jerusalem, how magnificent it would be, and it was just really hard work. There was no temple. There were no walls around the city. They kept being raided. It was horrible. Not like they'd dreamed. And this is the prophecy from that time. But actually it's an echoing of promises that were given by God that go all the way back. All the way back to the exile. To the exodus. To when the people of God were slaves in Egypt. And those first promises just get reinterpreted each time, again and again, with the message that God will keep God's promise. This passage also echoes more important, well, just as importantly, the things that were said about Jesus at the beginning in the first three chapters were said by Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna and 
probably most importantly by his mother in her song of protest. But those were words that were said about him and to him. Today, he takes those words and applies them to himself. He owns those words. He says, those words I take on board. I will live these out. When he reads these things and says, today these, have these words, these promises have been fulfilled in your hearing, he is saying that this is the lens by which he is going to understand himself. Now I often talk about three questions that we need to be thinking about. Who is God, who am I, and what is mine to do? When Jesus says this, he is saying, when I ask that question, who is God, this is where I go to. Who is God? God is the one who keeps these promises. And who am I in light of that? Jesus is saying, I am the one through whom God is keeping those promises. So what is mine to do? Jesus is saying, to live this out. And so the rest of Luke's gospel is Jesus is Luke telling us the story about how Jesus lives that out. Luke is offering us, in this little passage, a lens by which we are to understand the rest of the Gospel and the book of Acts. This is what it looks like when these promises are fulfilled. And he's offering us a lens by which we are to, under, to answer the questions about who is Jesus? And what did he come to do? And who did he come for? And the who did he come for, well he puts that right out there at the beginning and people don't like his answer. Just like people would not like his answer today. Because he didn't just come for the in-group. But that, again, is next week. So, this is the lens by which we are to understand Luke's Gospel and we are to understand Jesus. In essence, we should come back to this passage every week for the rest of the year, every time we read Luke and ask the question, how, what is Luke saying about that passage in the story? How is Jesus living out those promises in this story? Now, another thing to note about this is that it's in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is something that is completed in the past but has ongoing effects into the present. So a past simple is an event in the past, it's done, it's completed, may not have any effect on us at all. It's nice to know that happened, but the perfect tense happened in the past, still affects what's happening in the, in the present and on into the future. And that's the tense that this passage is written in. So Luke is saying, yes, this happened in the past, but it has an effect on into the present, his present, the, the present of the community of Luke. And he's saying to us as readers of his, of his gospel, and it has an effect for us as well. These promises are still being fulfilled today. It's not just a nice passage that happened 2,000 years ago. It's happening today. So the question is, 
what does this passage mean for us today? And where do we see this passage being lived out today? And what would it look like if this was fulfilled completely today? What would the world be like? So those are three questions that we need to think about. And I could wax lyrical about them. Or we could turn to our neighbours and talk about what we think. So here's the passage. So what, what does this passage mean for us gathered in this church today? That the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free to declare the year of the Lord's favour, the Jubilee year. So what does that mean? Where do we see that being lived out today? And what would it look like if the world actually was shaped entirely by this passage? So I'll give you a few minutes to chat to your neighbours about that. Just, you know, the small stuff. There you go. So any observations, reflections that anyone would like to share from those questions? terms of thinking about where we see this happening, there are groups like Amnesty International that are doing that kind of work. Yep. Tutuinga Thano is another group that's doing that kind of work. Kaiaroha is another group that's doing that kind of work. Centerpoint. Centerpoint. Yep. Any other thoughts? Yes. Glenn. One of the things about the word here uh, is we like we hear things all the time. I've heard so many sermons, and you've heard seven years of sermons out of me. 
And in the end, you, I kind of wonder, I mean, if I think about all the sermons I've listened to, what difference it made to my life, really. Um, and I hope that my sermons have made a difference. But, but in the end, you know, hearing something for us is something we hear, we think about, and then we can forget about, and it can have no difference at all. But the word here, here, is about that lens, the way we see the world. Uh, Bonnie and I are listening to the biography of Michelle Obama um, and uh, when we do long trips. Um, so we're nearly halfway through. It's 19 hours, so it's, quite, it's a big book. It's not small. Uh, and she's talking about how she had... She didn't use this language, but effectively she said how she had heard the, the road for her, which was that, I mean, her parents were kind of middle class, but lower middle class. They... Um, Mum stayed at home, her dad worked in the water, water plant, um, and uh, everything was about their two kids and making sure their two kids got the opportunities that they didn't. So, you know, they were in the good schools and they worked hard, and then uh, both she and her brother got into Princeton, uh, and uh, they got their degrees there, and then they went to Harvard. She went to Harvard and got a law degree because success for her was to get to go to the Ivy League colleges and universities to get a good degree and to get a good high-paying job. And then in her mid-twenties, something, some things happened. One of those was this guy called Barack entered her life, which made her rethink. And she realised... She didn't like being a lawyer. She actually didn't like the law. She'd never stopped to think about what brought her, what her passion was in life. I mean, there'd been glimpses of that while she was at Princeton in the kind of non-curriculum activities she did. And there were glimpses of that at Harvard in the non-curriculum activities. But she'd always, she had heard the story in her head that success was to get the good degrees, to get a good job with a big law firm in Chicago, and then move on to get the good car and the house, etc. That was what she understood her life in. And because of the things that happened in her life, she began to rethink what she had heard. The trouble is, all of us have lenses by which we understand our lives and the world around us. And in what Luke offers us today, he is saying this is what we should understand our lives by. This is what we should understand God by. This is what we should understand ourselves by. This passage, this is the heart of it. So I'm going to read it again and I'm going to invite you to hear it. Not just as a nice Bible passage, but as the passage that Luke offers us to think about and to live our lives by. And then we will have, actually it's a nice creed, so we'll do the creed this week. As you hear this, ask yourself, what needs to change for me if if this really was at the heart of my life? What am I invited to if I place this at the centre of all I do 
and how I understand myself. As I think about who is God and who am I and what is ours and mine to do, what are we invited to by this passage? When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing.'" 